Hello, everyone. Welcome. My name is Amy Foster. I'm so happy to be with you today. I'm totally enjoying studying the book of Joshua with you, the good land. So welcome to Women in the Word. Thanks for being with us today. A young friend of mine let me know recently that her husband jokingly refers to his men's Bible study as men in the Word. He'll say, oh, don't bother me right now. I have to do my men in the Word. <laughs> and that makes me laugh, but it also makes me really grateful for you. Um, I love the guys. I love learning and growing with them, but I'm really grateful for this opportunity to study God's Word just with women because the truth is we sort of speak the same language, don't we? I think we can communicate the truth of the Bible in ways that resonate uniquely to us, and I'm glad for that. The passages that we're looking at today are a great example of that because we're at the very end of the book of Joshua, and Joshua is a military leader, and it's a story of a great military conquest. But ladies, when I read these last two chapters, all I see is a great love story. And I don't really think men in the Word would teach these chapters this way, and I'm okay with that. I'm not a man, so I'm going to teach these as a great love story between God and Israel today. So I thought it'd be easy if I start us off with a modern love story. I'm going to tell you a little bit about meeting my husband, Greg. We met at the, the midpoint of our lives. We were not young. I actually uh, nicknamed Greg my old bachelor. I was 45 when we met. And quite honestly, I didn't really want to be married in the future. And I didn't really even want to date. But God was doing a work in my heart and challenging me to move from fear to faith. And so I agreed to go on a date with Greg. And Greg was just kind and thoughtful and generous and good to me. And I just respected him. That was my overwhelming response to Greg. Well, he kept asking me out and he kept being kind and generous and thoughtful. And after a while, I just had to be honest with him and say, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing here. You're being kind and thoughtful and generous all the time. What am I supposed to do? And he gave me the best answer. He said, you don't really have to do anything. I will initiate and you just respond and we'll see how that goes. And so Greg kept initiating. He kept being kind and generous. And after a few months, I started figuring out Greg was loving me. And after a few more months, I decided I could respond. And the response that came out of my heart was overwhelming love for Greg because he had been so good and kind to me. That's exactly what Israel is doing in these chapters today. They are responding to the goodness and the kindness and the faithfulness of God to us. We're gonna begin in Joshua chapter 23. So open your Bibles. This is sort of the beginning of Joshua's farewell address to all of Israel here. He's going to summon all Israel together. It's been at least 10, maybe 20 years since they have distributed the land to all the tribes. And really what Joshua is doing is he's taking them on a trip down memory lane. And he's saying to them, see how God has loved Loved you. Israel, look and see how God has lived, loved you. He's reminding them that God initiated all of this. He first came to them before they existed as a nation and he put his love on them. And then he made promises to them. And he has been powerful and faithful and true to accomplish all of those promises. And now it's simply Israel's return 
Um, it's Israel's turn to respond to God. So begin reading with me in Joshua chapter 23. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers. And he said to them, I am old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I've already cut off from the Jordan River to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess the land. Okay, it's very clear at this point that God has fought for Israel. He's the one who's given them success. And you know, we have to think back about that very first battle in Jericho. It was such an example of a supernatural victory. God did the work as he caused those walls of Jericho to fall down. And now all the good land of Canaan has been distributed. God has driven out almost all of the Canaanites who'd been in that land but some pockets of resistance remain. There are still some Canaanites there, and God has already promised that he has taken care of these people. He is going to continue to be faithful to push these people out. God is telling them their victory is as good as done. And we have to stop in this moment and ask why? Why has God done all of this for Israel? Take a look on your verse sheet. It's Psalm 44, verse three. It was not by their sword that they had won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was by your right hand, God, your arm and the light of your face, for you loved them. God did all of this for Israel because he loved them. And Joshua has reminded the people of that. And now he turns to the people and he says, respond. Respond to God's great love. Their response is going to begin with the word therefore. And I want you to pay attention to this word because in these two chapters we're looking at today, therefore is always the link. It's the link between look at all that God has done and Israel respond. And it's showing us very clearly their response is based on everything God has done. So look at their response beginning in verse six. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. And then look at verse 11. Be very careful therefore to love the Lord your God. So Israel's response here modeled by Joshua is be strong in obedience. Don't assimilate one bit with these Canaanites. Cling to God and be careful in your love to God. And the unifying theme of all those instructions is love God back. 
Respond to all that God has done by loving him back. Respond with your whole heart. And we know because God tells us all through the scriptures, our heart is the wellspring from which everything else flows. Our heart is what's most important to God. That's why he tells us in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And we all know from the New Testament, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? This is what he quoted to them. You shall love God with all your heart and then love others. Loving God first from a full, a whole heart, that's fundamental to everything else we do in our spiritual life. It's fundamental even to our obedience. Matthew Henry says this, what we do in religion, we must do from a principle of love, not by constraint or slavish fear of God, but out of choice and with delight. It all starts with love. And so we have to consider where does that kind of love come from? How do we uh, stir that love up? You know, maybe some of you have raised multiple children as in siblings, or maybe you've been a sibling, or maybe you've babysat for siblings before. We're probably all familiar with the experience when siblings squabble. And our response to them is always, love your brother, love your sister. And I'll confess to you on some of my most uh, difficult days, I would be inclined to say, now you sit in that timeout chair and you don't get up until you can love your brother. Well, any experienced parent or babysitter knows you cannot command love. And a person cannot manufacture it just because someone told them they needed to do it. And that's because love is a response. Love is always a response. 1 John 4.19 tells us, we love God because he first loved us. It is our response to the one who is love. Love is our response. One author says this, only the great lover is able to kindle this love in our hearts and our minds. This God who wins our love by what he says and what he does. So love is always going to be our response to God's intervention in our lives. Then Joshua says, so, so be strong to keep the law perfectly. And that's the same instruction that God gave directly to Joshua back in chapter one at the beginning of all this battle and conquest book. Um, so Israel would have to persevere in obedience to all of God's standards, but their obedience and their perseverance, it would be an outward expression of what was already happening inwardly in their heart. It was an expression of their love. It was never just a practice of religion for them. And so obedience would include no mixing with the Canaanites. Some of them are still in the land and God said, that's out of bounds. That's outside the boundaries I've set for your life. That means no treaties, no marriages, no friendships, no alliances, none with the Canaanites. And the reason for that is all those pagan practices, they were kind of sticky. And if Israel gets close to those pagan practices, they're gonna start sticking to those things and God doesn't want that. So he forbids all contact. They're not even to hear or speak the names of those foreign gods. They're definitely not to sacrifice to them, to serve them or to pray to them. Instead, Joshua says, cling to the Lord, cling to the Lord. 
We're going to see the word cling repeated many, many times in these two passages. So I wanted to pay a little bit of attention to it. I looked it up. It's a Hebrew word, cling or cleave. It literally means to stick to, to hold tight. And it comes from the Hebrew word for glue, cling. All right, so literally it means holding and sticking tight, but in a more abstract meaning, it means loyalty and devotion forever. And actually it's used all through the Old Testament, but the very first time we see that word is in Genesis chapter two. Listen to the context here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. So cling is really a love story kind of a word, isn't it? It means to be joined together intimately forever, never letting go. And so that's God's desire for Israel. Don't cling to these pagan things. Instead, just cling to the Lord, hold tight. And that's followed up with this instruction in verse 11, be very careful with your love. Be careful to love the Lord your God. And I just had to stop and think about how are we careful with our love? We're careful with lots of other things. It means we're going to be diligent and attentive. And I thought, okay, I'm careful about the numbers on my bank account. I watch those pretty closely. I'm careful about the numbers on my scale. I watch those sadly pretty closely too. I'm careful about the family members who are youngest or weakest or most vulnerable. And so I think the message here is take the same kind of attentive care and focus it on your love and your relationship with God. So that means watch it very closely. If we're watching our love for God, that means every day I'm paying attention. Am I spontaneously recognizing God's presence and His goodness? Am I spontaneously thanking Him and praising Him? Am I every day wanting to spend time with Him? That's one way we pay very close attention. And the same way we make immediate adjustments or changes when those numbers on the scale or the bank account go in the wrong direction, we need to make immediate adjustments when our love for God is going in the wrong direction. So that might look like a day full of grumbling and complaining or anxiety or fear or not wanting to be with God. To take great care is to watch for and respond to those things. So for Israel, they won't always be coming right off these miraculous experiences with God. Distance will come in and they will have to take care lest their, wane, their love wanes in those experiences. So Joshua moves on from this instruction to a really serious warning. He says, if you aren't careful with your love, if you aren't serious about clinging to God, some serious and sober things will happen. Join me in verse 12 here. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they will be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Okay, so the words that God uses here leave us absolutely no doubt. Participating in these ungodly practices 
it's not safe. It's outside of God's good boundaries, the place where he wants us to flourish. He uses the words, a snare, a trap, a whip, a scourge, thorns. Those aren't good words. Those are deceiving, enslaving, hurtful, destructive things. God's meaning is very clear here. And if those things aren't bad enough, clinging to these pagan practices will also lift God's hand of protection off of Israel. They will no longer have God's enabling grace, helping them win these battles and drive these people out of the land. So Joshua's whole heart and desire for Israel is really built into this warning here. And you can hear it expressed pretty clearly in verse 15. Uh, 14. And I think it reads almost like his last will and testament. This is his most valuable thing that he has to offer. And he's sharing it with Israel here. He says, and now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and if you go and serve other gods and bow to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. Okay, Joshua's message is don't forget, not one good word of God's has failed. Not a single word. So for me, I always have to remember God is not human. He is not human. Humans have a tendency to lie and break their word. Humans have a tendency to uh, overpromise and then be unable to deliver their word. Humans have a tendency to just fall short, but not so with God. If God has said it, it is true and he will do it. He's been completely faithful to his promise, but he will also be completely faithful to his words of warning. Israel needs to be sobered by that. If they cling to these other things, their disobedience will kindle God's righteous anger. He will lift his hand of protection and they will ultimately be removed off this good land where God has put them. Now, if we know Israel's history, we know that that actually does happen about 800 years later, but that's a big downer and it doesn't fit into our up love story today. So you can go read about that in Kings and Chronicles. We're not gonna talk about it today. What God knows, what Joshua knows, the biggest risk for Israel is not a military risk. It's not a political risk. It's not a social risk. The biggest risk is spiritual. And that's true for us also. The biggest risk in our lives is a spiritual risk if our hearts are not wholly committed to God. So I'd love for us to stop and think, how can we be careful with our hearts? How can we be careful to cling to God the way Joshua is instructing the people here? And I think the easiest thing we can do is to follow Joshua's example and walk down memory lane with God. We can begin by remembering God's great love for us and then simply respond. 
respond to the greatest love that's ever been offered to you. Now, I know when I say reflect on your life and remember God's love, many of us have had some pretty hard experiences in our life, and maybe some of us are having hard experiences right now. You know, we always have to remember we are human, which means we focus on hours and days and weeks, and the present experience is always the biggest experience. We have to remember God is eternal. And when God is setting his hope and his love on us, he's basing it on eternal things. God's hope is for our eternal best. So when we want to reflect on God's goodness in our life, we need to reflect on his goodness in terms of eternal things. So for all of us today, if we are followers of Jesus, we can walk down memory lane. I'm gonna do that a little bit for you here. I'm gonna help you reflect on God's goodness in your life. In love, God knit you together in your mother's womb. In love, on your birthday, God filled your lungs with the breath of life. In love, God determined the exact time and the exact places where you would live and they were the exact places where you would search for God because he was waiting to be found. He sent his holy sinless son to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin so that you could be attached to him forever. He sent his spirit to stir faith in your heart the very first time so that you could believe in him. When you believed, he put his name on you forever He marked you with his Holy Spirit who would guide you and protect you. And even in all those hard things that happen in this world, God says he redeems those broken things in our days and he redeems the sinful things in our hearts for his glory. And the very best thing, God has prepared a time and a place where you will live with him forever. That's how he has loved you. I can't make myself love God, but I can remind myself of God's loving activity in my life. And then I simply respond with a whole heart. I think that's how we can be careful with our love. That's what Joshua's doing here. Okay, let's move on to chapter 24. We don't know exactly how many years transpire between chapter three and 24, but we do know Joshua's older because he keeps telling us that he's older. He's going to repeat that several times here. He gathers all Israel again. This time he's gathered them at Shechem. And this is a renewal of the Mosaic covenant. Their ancestors had participated in this covenant and committed to it years before. And now at God's initiative, it's time for the next generation to renew it. I'm not sure why Joshua has chosen Shechem, but I've got some pretty strong ideas. Joshua has chosen an emotionally significant place, a place full of beautiful history for Israel. It's a place that is bound to stir up their memories of God's great love for them. The location has significance for many reasons. You know, the first thing that happened at Shechem happened back in Genesis 12. We remember that God came to Abraham and said, leave your country, leave your home and go to a land I'm going to give you. Abraham didn't know where he was going, but he left and he went to Canaan. And when he got to Shechem, God spoke and said, look around Abraham, this is the land. 
this is it, you're standing on it. And Abraham was so moved, he builds an altar to God there. We next see Shechem in Genesis chapter 35. You know, you may remember Jacob and Esau when Jacob deceived his brother and he had to flee for fear of his life. He was gone for a long time. He amassed a large family and wealth. And when he was finally ready to come back into God's inheritance, he comes back into Canaan and it's right here at Shechem that he's convicted by God and he calls all his family together and he says, if you're carrying in any foreign idols, get them out now. We're getting rid of them now. And the family obeys and they pull out the idols and they bury them there at Shechem. It's, it's a memory of a wholehearted service to God. And more recently, we've been at Shechem in Joshua chapter eight. As soon as they had that great victory over the city of Ai, Joshua leads the people back here. They build an altar on Mount Ebo and they review the covenant of God and the people accept it. Amen, amen, amen. Surely those pillars that Joshua wrote on that day, they're still visible here at Shechem. So just being at this place would remind Israel of all God's faithful activity in their past and would stir up the love in their hearts. Okay, the next thing I want us to understand before we get further into chapter 24 is historians and theologians are in pretty strong agreement that everything written in chapter 24 follows the format of a political treaty. You know, in this day, there were kings who would have treaties with their subjects and everything written here reads exactly like a formal treaty of the day. It would begin with a historical prologue and that's where the king is telling and reviewing all the good things he's done for his subjects. Next would come the covenant stipulations. That's when the people and each side actually, they're promising what they're going to do in this covenant relationship. Then they would explain the consequences for breaking the covenant and it would end with a formal writing and recording of the covenant. We're going to see all those parts in chapter 24. This is God calling his people to formally renew this covenant. And I think it's like a wedding ceremony after the courtship. But it's called a covenant. That's a word that we use a lot in Bible study and in church culture. Um, in Hebrew, my understanding is the word covenant literally means to bind yourself to another, to wrap yourself with leather straps or fetters. Our word convene comes from this word, bringing people together. And that's exactly what God has been doing from the very beginning of history. He's bringing people together to live into a special relationship with him. So let's remember that a covenant is an agreement about how we're going to be in relationship together. And a covenant is created for the good of the individual and for the good of the group because a covenant provides security. We know exactly what's expected of us and how things are going to go in the relationship. You know, think about a marriage ceremony, which is also a covenant. I hope you've never been to a wedding where the bride and groom stand to take their vows and they pledge to one another, I really love you today. We'll see what happens tomorrow. 
that's not a covenant. There's no security or stability in that at all. A covenant tells us that we're going to stay true to each other and it defines those terms. In our marriage covenant, we say, even if we're poor, even if we're sick, even if we're old, we're going to stick together. That's why a covenant is good for people because we know what to expect and it actually calls us to be better than we would be without the covenant. That's what God is doing with Israel here. So he's got them in a sacred place, making a sacred covenant renewal. And he begins verse one, chapter 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. So now these are God's words. It's as if God himself is speaking. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. We've already said God is always the initiator. And that really uh, stands out to me. Before Abraham ever worshiped God, before he ever knew God, Abraham is described this way. They served God other gods. They worshiped idols. And God came to Abraham in love and invited him out of that into a new relationship with God. And then God will continue following the form of this uh, formal treaty, and he will explain all that he, the king, has done for the people. And the repetition of using the pronoun I here is really pretty overwhelming. I'm gonna paraphrase it for you. God says, I took Abraham and led him to Canaan. I gave him Isaac. I gave Isaac, Jacob and Esau. I gave Esau the hill country. I sent Moses and Aaron. I plagued Egypt. I brought you out. That's a summary of all God's dealing with Israel from Genesis 11 all the way to Exodus 15. God picks back up, I brought your fathers out of Egypt. I put darkness between the Egyptians and you. I made the sea cover them. I did it. I brought you from the wilderness to the land of the Amorites. I gave them into your hand. I destroyed them before you. I would not let Balaam curse you. I delivered you out of his hand. I gave the Canaanites into your hand. I gave you a land on which you didn't labor. That covers everything that happens to Israel from Exodus 12 to where they are right now, Joshua 22. It's God's complete history with his people and there can be no doubt, there is one main actor and it's God. He has done it all. He's saying all that you have, all that you've needed, I promised it and I delivered it. It made me think of Jeremiah 31, verse three. For long ago, the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, O oh, my people, with an everlasting love, with loving kindness, I have drawn you to me. And now hearing all that God, their King has done for them, it's Israel's time to respond. And just like a formal treaty, this is the part where they pledge their own faithfulness to God. We're gonna begin reading in verse 14, but before we do, I want you to pay attention in these verses how many times you hear the word serve. Listen carefully to the word, for the word serve here. 
Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day who you will serve, whether the God your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's clearly um, a reference to this idea of a treaty between a king and his subjects. And the only response to all the king's goodness here is to respond and serve the Lord wholly. We see Joshua again leading by example. He says, as for me, my choice is made. I am serving the Lord. And the people do the same thing. They pledge their faith. They pledge that they will too also respond by serving the Lord. They pledge it three times, three different times. First, it begins in verse 17. They recount their own history with God, but they do it pretty briefly. And then they say, therefore, based on that history, we will serve the Lord. He is our God. And then the second time, Joshua adds a warning. Perhaps he's concerned that they've spoken rashly or considered this too lightly. And so he reminds them in verse 19, hey, God is holy and you are not. And then he reminds them, God is jealous. He won't share his throne with anything else. And you are prone to put something else on that throne. He's giving them a warning here, but they respond in verse 21, no, we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua challenges them one more time. And his challenge almost sounds like, oh yeah, prove it. Prove it, Israel. You're going to have to put your money where your mouth is. Look what he says in verse 23. Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. It's as if Joshua is saying, you've made this pledge with your mouth. I need you to back it up with your actions. He's letting them know that serving God is going to require them to reorder everything in their life. They will have to serve God and serve God alone. Now, I thought this passage was a little confusing. When he says, put away your idols, I thought, what? Are they worshiping idols? Are they carrying them around in their, in their saddlebags like Jacob's family was? And here's the truth we don't know. We can only speculate. And people have speculated both ways on that. I'm going to speculate in front of you today. I don't think they were carrying around physical carved idols. And I don't think that because if they had been, I think it would have gone on to describe this beautiful process of them pulling out their idols and burning them and burying them there. But we don't see that. So I'm speculating that Joshua is talking about a different kind of an idol, not a carved image from the olden days, but something we are more familiar with today. I think it's possible Joshua is talking about idols of the heart. I think that's why he says, put away the foreign gods and incline your heart to the Lord. Now you may be familiar with the quote, the human heart is an idol factory. 
And we know that that is true. We're all worshiping something. An idol is anything that takes the place that is reserved for God alone. So that could be anything that you put the bulk of your trust or your faith in. It could be your bank account. It could be your good health. It could be your youthful appearance. It could be your professional or your social success. It could be your children's success, your family's well-being. It could be your beautiful home in the right zip code. And those are all good things. They're gifts from God. They're meant for our enjoyment, but they can become an idol when we trust them more than we trust God or when we put our faith in them more than God, when we want them more than God and when we serve them more than God. If our peace, hope, and joy depend on those things, those things are most likely an idol. One writer says this, if God does not really occupy the highest place in our hearts, controlling all, something else does, and that something is an idol. So there's clearly no place for idols in a love story, and there's no place for idols in a love relationship with God. Let me take you back to my little love story. What if I had responded to my husband's great love for me and said, oh, I love you back with my whole heart, but there is this other guy. And you know, he sometimes says really nice things to me. So I'm not going to block his number. And every now and then I'm going to take his call and I'm going to let him say nice things in my ear. But I really love you, Greg. That's a different kind of a love story, isn't it? And we know that we have words for women who act like that and they're not flattering words. And we have to know God has words for people who act like that too. God uses the word unfaithful and idolatrous. The modern word would be cheater because a divided heart cheats God of what God alone deserves. There's no place for that in a love story and God won't have it. So the risk of idolatry was great for Israel and we have the same risk of idolatry. We all have to choose to serve God. We have to choose to put Him alone on the throne of our hearts and that means every day we have to search our own hearts and be diligent to remove idols. A few practical ways we can do that, we can consider if there's something that we really want that God has not put in our life, do we grumble and complain and sin against God because we don't have it? Or if there's something God hasn't allowed in our life, will we manipulate and control and sin and scheme in order to get it? that might be an idol. So just like Israel, we have to be diligent and search our hearts every day. All right, the formal treaty ceremony would conclude with the writing and recording of this agreement. And that's exactly what Joshua does next. We can begin reading in verse 25. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and he put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us for it is heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. 
Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. And then Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Okay, they have recorded everything and inscribed the words on a stone. And it says they've set it up there next to the sanctuary. That doesn't mean the tabernacle here because the tabernacle is not located at Shechem. I think the word sanctuary is just suggesting to us again, this is a sacred holy place because of the memories it holds. The memorial is probably set right there where Abraham's altar had been built and maybe right beside the place where Joshua has already inscribed on those other stones. So it's a stone pillar that serves just like a legal document would today. And it shows the people have sworn to love and serve the Lord, to live in a covenant relationship with him as their king. Joshua is at the end of his career here and he really has done all that is humanly possible to call the people to faithful commitment to God. And the whole nation affirms this calling, their commitment to God. They will love God, they will serve God, they will be obedient to his law. And then Joshua sends them all away. Every man returns to the inheritance that God has given him. You know, every theologian I read said, this is the high point for Israel's history. This is their bright, shiny moment. They had clearly followed the Lord more faithfully than their fathers who'd wandered around in the wilderness. And they had clearly experienced God's blessing more fully, more generously than the generation before them and more so than many of the generations that would come after them. But this is the close of that period in Israel's history at the end of Joshua's life. The period will come to a close and it'll be designated by three burials. And the first is Joshua's. Read with me in verse 29. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all of the work that the Lord did for Israel. So first we have Joshua's death and burial there in Ephraim. And next it records the burial of Joseph's bones. It's such a great story. You remember Joseph was one of the 12 sons, the 12 tribes, and he was carted off to Egypt as a slave. And it was in Egypt where they became so numerous, but they were enslaved there. But Joseph in faith knew that God would honor the promise to bring his people into this good land. And at his death, Joseph had his family members swear that they would not leave his bones in Egypt, but that they would carry him into the promised land. So they do. And guess where Joseph gets buried? Right here at Shechem, where they are today. And next, Eleazar the priest, he had assisted Joshua and been such a support and a servant to the people. He dies. He's buried in Gibeah. That's one of the Levitical cities that we've read about. This is the end and that bright, shiny moment of Israel's history. And there's so much that we can learn from this ending. You know, we don't live under the Mosaic covenant. We live under a covenant of grace, those of us who are following Jesus. But our covenant was offered by the same loving, faithful God. He initiated it all. 
He initiated it. Romans 5, 8 tells us God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I think our great takeaway from this chapter is we can all be careful with our love. We can be careful to nurture our love for God, remembering how he came to us and offered to live in a relationship with us forever. I think this pattern of remember and respond, remember and respond, it's a lifelong habit we can develop. And the truth is when we remember the love of God, the only reasonable response is to love him and serve him with your whole heart. Let's pray. God, we are moved by your love for us. And so we just stop and we thank you. We thank you, you've given us these words and you show us your love from the beginning of time so that we can know you and love you and serve you. So God, I just ask for your help. I ask that you would help us each and every day love and serve you from a whole heart. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.